On behalf of this week's sponsor, I wanted to tell you about the amazing work that Deliveroo and the Trussell Trust have been doing together to support people facing hardships across the UK. To date, Deliveroo and its customers have helped provide over 2 million meals to people through the app and their Roundup and Donate feature, as well as helping to fund vital wraparound services provided by food banks. Deliveroo have also pledged to increase this number to 4 million meals globally. Any Deliveroo customer anywhere in the UK can add their support, and it's so easy to do too. You simply choose to round up your order to the nearest pound when you place it on the app on the checkout page. If every customer who used Deliveroo, and there are millions every month, rounded up just 10p on one order, the impact would be enormous. Times are hard right now and a lot of people are struggling to afford the essentials, leading to food banks needing to support more people than ever before. So this provision of meals really is crucial to so many people. The money also goes to supporting the food banks with financial support in the form of advice on debts and benefits, as well as connections, which will hopefully end the need for food banks and lift people out of poverty long term. A small donation in this very simple way really can make a huge difference. If you can, consider rounding up your next order on Deliveroo. You can give as little or as much as you like. Find out more at DeliveroofullLife.com. I'll pop the link in the show notes. Thank you very much to Deliveroo. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven desert island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. I just wanted to say thank you so much for all of the lovely messages that you've sent over the last few weeks about my new newsletter, Dinner Tonight. It's so exciting to have so many of you signed up and I'm so grateful for all of your support. I know a lot of you have listened to the podcast since the beginning or the very early days and you all send me the nicest messages about what the podcast means to you and honestly, Getting those messages makes my day. The chance to be able to do something like dinner tonight, which is, you know, not only away from ads and algorithms and everything that comes with that, which is very exciting, but it's also more of a two-way conversation with you and feels a little bit more personal somehow landing in someone's inbox. There's also going to be little sneak peeks and behind the scenes stuff from the podcast and extra questions that we've been putting to the guests, which is very exciting. So if you like the sound of any of that, then sign up via the link in my bio on Instagram or via the website desertislanddishes.co or you can go to www.dinnertonight.substack.com. I actually never know if you still need to say the www thing. <laughs> but anyway, there we go, just in case. There are now over six and a half thousand people on the newsletter, which is so exciting and uh, honestly means so much that people have taken the time to sign up and write to me. 
This week's guest on Desert Island Dishes has had an incredible journey and journey is such an overused and corny word, but it does seem appropriate. She's really taken the baking world by storm, has turned a blog into a booming career, and I think her story is very inspiring, so I do hope you enjoy listening. Without further ado, here is today's episode. My guest today is Jane Dunn. You may know her through her recipes online as Jane's Patisserie. She's a master following of over 1.3 million with her easy to follow but super indulgent recipes for all levels of bakers. From her large Instagram following, regular this morning stints and record-breaking stats, Jane's hugely engaged following has made her the generation's go-to baker and have her being called the Mary Berry of the Instagram age. Her debut book, Jane's Patisserie, became the fastest selling baking book of all time, selling 44,000 copies in the first three days alone, outselling some of the biggest names out there, and she did it without the support of a TV show or a huge publicity drive. Pretty impressive stuff from the woman who found her way into baking after ending up in cookery school on what she calls a fluke. Her blog attracts 8 million views a month, and when asked the secret to her success, Jane has said, I think my selling point is that I'm down to earth, and these recipes are accessible to anyone. Her second book, Jane's Patisserie Celebrate, became an instant number one bestseller, and she's just written her third book, which has just been released. Jane has said, part of the reason that there's such a response to my recipes is that baking is more emotional than the other forms of cooking. We make breakfast, lunch, and dinner because they're a necessity, but patisserie is very personal. Welcome, Jane. Hello. (laughs) I feel like people can get a little uncomfortable having to sit there and listen to their own achievements. You've done so much in a relatively short space of time. Having the fastest selling baking book of all time is so impressive. How does it feel to really think about that? Honestly, it still doesn't feel real. And it's just the most amazing thing that could have ever happened to me, really. It's changed my life. Is it the kind of stuff that you dreamt about or is it even too big for dreams I think it's way too big like my friends and family were like yeah they might sell a few copies and even now people like the fastest selling book ever yeah no it will it will never change in my mind to being anything other than a dream (laughs) and we know that you're an excellent baker the queen of patisserie but on your website you admit to actually preferring to eat savory food how about cooking I know the new book has a savory section on savory bakes but cooking in general what are your thoughts honestly I feel like it was the worst kept secret for so many years because people like do you love cake I do love cake but I also love everything salty and delicious and it was having the ability in the new book to be able to start doing savoury involve pasta as well and even roast potatoes Mm. it was just launching this whole other world in my mind of everything tasty do you think people just had images of you sitting at home like only eating cake oh yes I think it's the whole Bruce Bogtrotter thing with the chocolate cake where people (laughs) think I just sit there with a fork and it's like no I give the cake out to everyone around me my friends and family no they don't want to hear that Jane (laughs) (laughs) I will try everything I make though it's a very delicious tasty day when I'm in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Let's dive straight into the first desert island dish and that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Yes this one is a bit of a curveball and I think only people who went to my junior school will know what this is but every Friday was meatballs and rice mm. which you wouldn't think would go with rice but it was like the best dish all it was a plain <laughs> boiled rice with peas and sweet corn 
quite boring, really. It's a junior school <laughs> with meatballs and a tomato sauce. But the best bit about it was the pudding you got was cookies and milkshake. Ooh. I know. Junior school, cookies and milkshake pudding. Yeah. It was amazing. what every kid looked forward to. And even on work experience, when you had to do that when you were older, I went back to my junior school for the food. <laughs> but only on Fridays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had to go back and I even emailed them like, do you still do meatballs and rice? Um, and they did. And it's just even talking to my mum, like if I said to her, what was my favourite thing as a kid? It was meatballs and rice on a Friday oh, at school. so cute. <laughs> and what was cooking like at home? Because I know you did a lot of baking with your grandmother. Yes. But the general food, like, what what was that like growing up? A lot more plain. I love my mum, but I do think the cooking gene skipped a generation. Okay. And she will readily admit that. She can't bake anything. <laughs> really? Yeah, she really can't. The only thing she'll try and follow is my grandma's scone recipe. Okay because she wrote it down um, in the columns of a book and she'll make it over and over every year. But it was it was always quite plain food, like fried eggs and chips or something, or, I don't know, a lasagna, bolognese, you know, your standard food, really. But I always wanted to go, can we try this now, please, just in case? No, no, it was always the same food. <laughs> and you talk <laughs> about your grandmother being a brilliant yeah. baker and she had a vast collection of cookbooks with every recipe covered in her own notes and adaptations. And after she passed away and you grew up, you got given these books and you were constantly inspired to bake. I'm so interested in the idea of childhood experiences shaping who we are. Do you think even without your grandmother's input, would you have found your way to baking? I would say so. It was one of those things where you did like little bake sales at school or anything like that. I would want to be involved. And yeah. I never had food tech lessons at school, um, which I was always jealous of other kids having that ability. If you got into being asked to do something for the bake sale, I'd be like, yep, that'll be me. I will do that, please. And apparently I'm always been like her my grandma even like in how I like to move furniture around the room just to see a room in a different shape apparently it's exactly what she used to do <laughs> so I feel like I'm just her twin really yeah <laughs> kind of amazing for your mum not being interested or maybe yeah. not that skilled at baking it must be really interesting for her to see <laughs> her own mother like played out through you a hundred percent I feel like part of her is a bit jealous and she's like yeah. I'll give it a go one day and I'm no no I'll bring the cake don't worry <laughs> I know it's my dad's birthday I'll make the lemon drizzle don't you worry <laughs> you grew up in a very academic family because your father is a retired lecturer in electronic engineering <laughs> and your mother was a vice principal at the local college I think you were looking at doing an architect architectural degree but yes. you delayed that in order to go to catering college I think exactly tell that. us how did that all play out I feel like most like teenagers are like oh I want to do this no I don't want to do that and you can never really make your mind up like most of my friends did know and I feel like I was quite jealous of that mm. and I applied to uni three different times for like architecture graphic design and I just went I kind of just want to cook, though. And I think it was the fear of telling my parents, I don't want to go to uni. And, I mean, they were amazing about it. They were completely supportive, had to look around different, like, schools and colleges and just found a little nook in the Devon countryside and went, this seems like the best place to go. Because of what they did, 
for their careers. Did yeah. you feel, not necessarily directly from them, but did you feel a pressure to go into something academic? A hundred percent. I was like, if they've done this and this is what they teach on the daily is kids my age. And I'm there going, I like pasta and I want to make ice cream. And I promise I'll work out a career at some point but please can I just learn how to cook properly? And I think at first they did sort of go, are you sure you want to do that full time? But in the end, I think once they saw how much love I had for cooking, even dinner for them, I felt like I had to prove it before I went. They were like, okay, yeah, it'll be be absolutely fine. (laughs) You did end up going to cookery school. You described that as being somewhat of a fluke. What did you mean by that? I feel like going through college age and then relationships and all sorts, I'm going, you know what, no, I'm going to do me. I'm going to go to school. And then just last minute signed up. Didn't really intend to go, if I'm honest. I think it was me being proud and a little bit too brave. I'd never moved away from home or anything like that. And I think about a week before, I was like, I don't want to go anymore. No, this is a bad idea. No, well, we were doing it. (laughs) You're going to Devon next week. And I think it was probably the best thing I did because I was that classic shy kid at school who would never do anything on stage or anything like that. So I think the idea of actually doing something for myself and learning how to cook in like a high-pressured environment, I don't know who I was. (laughs) But I guess that's a good lesson to learn, even like especially at quite a young age, is to push yourself outside of your comfort zone and you think you're not that kind of person, but actually all of these things can be learned. A hundred percent. And I still say that to myself now, like if I could teach a lesson to my younger self, it's do what you think you should do Mm. and believe in what you want because I'd always loved the cooking and the thought of learning it about food, how to appreciate food even more and even understand food was all I wanted. Mm. So I'm glad that was probably the first time I went, no, don't listen to your fears and just go for it. Let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish and that's the first dish that you learned to cook. So I think from like the baking background and just, you know, your regular kitchen, I've got to give credit to butterfly cupcakes. You've got to make the cupcake mix, probably a bit of eggshell in there, (laughs) and just mess everywhere, eating half of the cake mixture. I'd say if I went savoury, it's something my friend's mum used to make called splodge, Mm. which sounds quite bizarre. And all it really is, is bolognese, but with little bits from the fridge just shoved in it. (laughs) And it's always tasty, always (laughs) delicious. Cover it in enough cheese and it would taste great. But splodge was part of everything. (laughs) I think that's a good technique is giving something quite ordinary, quite a fun, unusual name and suddenly it makes it seem very exotic. Exactly, it was a little bit different. Yeah, a bit of splodge. (laughs) If I said it to my friends, they'd be like, what are you having for dinner? Splodge. (laughs) They wouldn't have a clue. (laughs) And how was catering college? Because I think it was a six month, very intensive course and it was largely focused on fine dining, I yes. think. So yeah. how did you find that whole side of things? I found it quite interesting because I think when I decided to go, I had the intentions of going into chefing mm. and into kitchens. Some people went into super yachts and all sorts, um, quite like high class. And in the six months, they do a charity dining event where you're acting as though you're Michelin star, even with a silver service, like learning how to polish stuff properly and quite intense and they purposely make it intense and I think it really gave me a moment to go oh this is definitely not easy (laughs) and it's made me appreciate every single chef that exists and that was before I'd even got in a real life kitchen I think I sort of thought it might be a bit of an easy ride I'd always intended to start my blog whilst I was there 
I couldn't have a second to breathe. Honestly, it it was amazing though. They taught you every single part of food you could think of to appreciate. If, for example, you're going to cook meat, how to appreciate the animal and use it correctly and like even where to source food from. And I think I went away from it just understanding the world a bit better. Mm. And I just have so much love for it and food now and teaching other people about food because it taught me everything. Yeah, but it did slightly put you off the idea of going to work in a restaurant? (laughs) Ah, maybe. (laughs) Um, I went to a few trials in kitchens and I was like, this is great. And then it was just the hours Mm. and all sorts. Especially being in the pastry section because you're always the last to leave. I think that's the thing. And Mm. then I was like, no, I I won't do the pastry section, even though it was by far the best bit I've done. I was like, I could do fish, I could do this. Mm, I I quite like my sleep. And (laughs) I think I was still way too much of a teenager in my head, really, to focus correctly. (laughs) In the introduction, I read the quote that you said about baking and how it's much more emotional than cooking. It's not a necessity, it's more personal. Mm. I wondered, what does baking mean to you? I think baking is one of those things that is almost therapy in a way, because Mm. with cooking, most people say, and I would agree, you can shove anything in a pan and cook it. There's no real rules. Whereas with baking, it's more of a chemistry. You have to follow a method and a process. And I think that slows it down in a way Mm. which helps because then you can step by step do something. It's a complete distraction. And I just love seeing things come to life. And when everyone has a dinner, everyone looks forward to the pudding. Even if you're full, they sort of go, oh, it's the sweet bit. And it's part of the charm of it, I think. Mm. And I think it's just good for the soul. Yeah, I like that idea of it not being a necessity. It's just like pure pleasure. Yeah. And also that point is really interesting because I recently did a voiceover on a video Mm. on social media talking about people who might consider themselves a good cook but not necessarily a baker and how you do tend to be one or the other. And is that because you're more scientific and that might be why someone's more swayed towards baking or are you more artistic which might be cooking and that isn't to say that baking isn't also an art form but my goodness (laughs) I got got a lot of comments (laughs) I can imagine it did (laughs) but what are your thoughts on that I would completely agree I think growing up with my dad like teaching electrical engineering my mum always says I've got quite the engineering brain so I think when that came down to like baking, the science, the structure, how it all works, the rules, it really helped. Mm. And I found it so enjoyable. And don't get me wrong, I still have disasters now. Like, I think it'd be silly to not admit that. And also, I'm very clumsy. I can drop a cheesecake on the floor and (laughs) it all goes very wrong. But I agree. I think also it's interesting from these conversations that I had... um, There were people who said that they had very scientific jobs, whether they actually worked in science or not. And so they had to follow a lot of rules. Mm. And that either meant that that is then what they enjoy doing in the kitchen and they want want to be told exactly what to do. Or it means when they then get into the kitchen, they (laughs) want to do the complete opposite. So there was was really no rhyme or reason to it. It was very interesting. There's no rules. (laughs) And I think also your earlier point about like during lockdowns, we really saw the power of baking. It got so many people through a really difficult time and it I think you say it brought a lot of really lonely people together which yeah like baking it's so much more than the sum of its parts I would completely agree like for me it helped me unbelievably like going through personal stuff as well and everybody was going through something during like COVID and it 
brought everyone together mm. and even through like ingredient shortages it was like yeah. what can we make with what we've got now <laughs> we all want to make something yeah and it was just having the time especially like parents with their kids it takes out a good block of time for entertainment and like even in the summer holidays baking is the perfect thing you can pick up and do let's talk about the third desert island dish what's the best dish you've ever eaten this one was a bit of thinking for me because i've eaten so much food and i love food and the annoying thing is, I can't remember the name of the restaurant. So I went on holiday to Rome about 10 years ago with my family. And we were sort of in the really touristy bit and everything. It's a bit too touristy. You'll have decent food. But I remember saying to my mum one day, I was like, can we just like walk out of the city for a bit? Because I feel like the better food's further away. It's not as busy. And we found this little kitchen, which had about four tables in this little tiny restaurant not a word of English on the menu. So we didn't really know what we were ordering. And I could see one was lasagna. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have the lasagna. <laughs> and it was like, it was just a lovely Italian grandmother doing all the cooking. And I cannot describe it as the best thing I've ever eaten. And it was lasagna, which is something people eat often. This one though, it was absolutely out of this world. And if I could go back just for that pasta, I really would. <laughs> no, there's nothing better. And like mm -hmm. you say, like you go off the beaten track yeah. and you just find somewhere and there is yes. no need to remember the name of the restaurant because it's not about that. It's yeah. just about the experience and yes. that one Italian nonna. Exactly. And it's like, I always think when you travel anywhere, like you want to experience touristy things. Like part of the reason that's why you travel. But I think for food, it's always better to go where the locals go. Yeah. Because they will have the core proper food. Yeah. Full of flavour. Definitely. <laughs> okay, so you finished cookery school and you thought that perhaps the right route would be to start writing yes. about food. So you started experimenting with your baking and you started your blog. This was back in 2014. How long did it take before you started to see traction with that? I would say probably about a year or so. And I think the moment I realised it gained any form of traction might be when I saw someone from Australia had made something. Mm. Because when back then you could see the amount of people who looked on your blog, where they were from, and that stuff. I was like, why is Australia on this list? That's so cool. And I went on to Instagram and I could see the person had tagged me in the bake and I was like, that is actually insane. Someone on the other side of the world has followed this recipe. And it wasn't just people pity looking at my website anymore, like my mum and my friends. <laughs> it was actual real life people making stuff. And this was when like Instagram was a completely different world back then. And like looking at the hashtag of different cakes and stuff and interacting with people and people started following me back. I don't know why still, if I'm honest. Um, but here we are nearly nine years later doing the same thing. But I just one day just sort of went, okay. And I actually wrote a recipe for a caramel Rolo cheesecake. Really quite simple, no-bake cheesecake. And it sort of went semi-viral. Oh, wow. And to the point that I named my first dog Rolo. <laughs> and it was actually after the cheesecake compared oh to the chocolate sweet. <laughs> so how far into your blogging journey were you when that first bit of virality happened? I'd say that was probably early 2016. Okay. So it was about a year and a half maybe. And I was like, oh, everyone's making this cheesecake. And then it was like going into the shop going, huh, I wonder if Rolos are ever going to sell out. And I, was, I don't know who I thought I was. <laughs> um, but it was just so exciting to just keep on seeing this cheesecake. So we're going to keep on writing cheesecake recipes and we're going to keep on doing this. And everyone was just interacting over and over and over 
about everything I was baking. How exciting. It's still, I don't really understand why it seems like pure fluke and luck that everyone just picked up on that cheesecake and then it sort of brought it forward Mm. and brought other things in, other people, other countries looking at it. That's so interesting. So you do feel like, I mean, you're obviously very modest to say it's a (laughs) fluke. It's not a fluke at all. But do you you feel like that one recipe really was like a big turning point? I would 100% say so. And I don't know at what point things started to take off in terms of social media, like how many followers I got, but things just started growing a bit quicker and quicker. And it took several years worth before 2020 for everything to grow steadily. Mm. And by steadily, like it went to about 200,000 people on Instagram, which is a lot of people. But it was such a steady growth over that time. But every time I posted that Rolo cheesecake, it was like a little peak. And everyone was just following that. And I was like, I can can sustain my career to this cheesecake. Yeah. Very proud of that. And I think with (laughs) blogging, there's a misconception that it's sort of the field of dreams. And that Mm. if you build it, they will come. And, And that isn't always the way. Did you have any kind of strategy in terms of the back end side of things, like with SEO or I don't know, like did you do anything to set your blog up for success? Honestly, I think if you mentioned SEO to me, I still don't fully understand what I'm doing. What does it mean? I said it like I understand it. I don't understand I think that was my issue. I just started up a free blog one day, didn't know what that was, didn't know what this was and just thought, oh, I'm doing the right thing. About five years into it, I learned about, oh no, I should have done this from the beginning oh no so it's sort of correcting mistakes over many many years now but I think that's fine it shows how casual I think I was about it and how much of a genuine blog it was that Mm. I didn't know you needed the importance of Google rankings and stuff like that and I still don't fully know what I'm doing we're gonna pause there and talk about the most important question of the day Jane what is your favorite sandwich (laughs) I feel like this is quite a childlike answer but it's a crisp sandwich No, that's an excellent answer. So talk me through your crisp sandwich. I feel like if I had to go for a main one, it would probably be white bread with a thick chunk of cheese. Mm. And then I was quite plain in my food when I was really young and only wanted ready salted crisps. But I think the charm of those is it gives you the crunch and the saltiness. Mm. Now I will have any flavor crisp, any flavor sandwich, but I just have to put crisps in the sandwich because I want that crunch and the extra flavor. You can get crunch from lettuce, but it's just not the same. No, Jane, we're not comparing <laughs> crisps with lettuce. <laughs> I think in my mind I do a little bit too often. But honestly, a thick chunk of cheddar cheese probably and some ready salted crisps in white bread. And yeah, I'm I'm not ashamed. It's great. No, that sounds so good. In the lead up to that answer, you said if you had to choose a main, does that mean you have a sweet option? I'm not going to lie. I love a jam sandwich. Mm. Again, it's so, so basic. But I just love it. And I remember if I had to have a packed lunch, I would have a jam sandwich as well as a crisp sandwich. (laughs) Just give me, you know, my main course and my pudding in sandwich form. And I'll be happy. Like, I'll be a happy kid running about forever, even though I was also a teenager at this point as well. And I'd still eat a jam sandwich now. (laughs) I love that. I think it's always easy to look at the success that someone's had and to read about the amazing things that they're doing. And in researching this, it said that you were getting 8 million views a month on your website during lockdown. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's important to remember that you had been working at your blog for six years prior to yes. that happening. It wasn't 
it's been incredible, but it hasn't been overnight. And I think so often overnight success, it kind of takes away from the hard work that yes. you've you've put in to get to where you are today. When you first started, what would you have deemed success to be? I think for me, the success of what I've done is just seeing people get into the kitchen and bake something, even if they've been too scared before, never have before. And I feel like a good example, if I base it off of my friend, um, she tried to make me a birthday cake once. And a lot of people these days are too scared to bake me a cake because they think it's not going to be good enough. And I'm like, the fact that you've made a cake is what means something to me. And bless her, she gave me a cake and she said, please don't eat it. And I was like, why oh, can't no. I eat the cake? <laughs> and it was raw in the middle, burnt on the outside. And then she covered it with jam and fondant <laughs> so I couldn't see that it was burnt and raw. And she was like, but it's the effort that counts. And I was like, that's exactly it. And then it was like, maybe if you just follow this recipe. And she like, what did you put like the oven setting on? And it was just this little tiny tweak. And now she bakes all of the time. And I think to me, that is the success. Mm. It's just anybody who doesn't bake at all getting in the kitchen and baking something for the first time is why I do what I do. Mm. And it just brings joy to people. And so do you think that is true? Like, do you genuinely think that everyone can bake? I really, really, really do. I think a lot of people are scared and you just, you've got to try. Mm. And I always try and aim my recipes to everyone of any skill level which I think sometimes people with a very, very good skill might go, they're a bit simple. But I think to them, I then say, but it tastes really good. Yeah, and, and sometimes, what's wrong with simple? Exactly. It's like me saying I love a jam sandwich. Like, it's so simple, mm. but it tastes, to me, brilliant. Yeah. And then if I can get any kids in the kitchen learning to bake and do all of that, that's 100% the reason to do it. Yeah. I think you're right that everyone can bake, but not everyone will necessarily love it and that's a bit yeah. you can't teach yeah. like you can encourage and all the rest of it and probably the younger that you learn yes. the more likely you are to love it <laughs> but if people say they can't bake it's probably just that they don't feel like they're very good at it and they don't enjoy it yeah I feel like the method for a lot of people is when they cook just whack the oven onto 200 yeah. and shove it in and it will cook no, and I I'm... always feel so seen when people say that I thought I was the only one that does that like 200 is the only setting on my oh, oven oh yeah exactly <laughs> What is the hardest part of getting to where you are today? Because so often, as I already said, we see the end result and that's all so exciting and shiny and happy. But have there been hard times yes. or has it been quite a smooth sailing journey? I'd say I've been luckier than a lot of people who have a world of social media around them because I think food is such a positive subject. Um, compared to putting myself out there about me, I always used to hide me away because essentially people don't care about me. They just want to see the cake recipes. <laughs> Give us the cake. Exactly. <laughs> and then I was sort of going, oh, I've hidden behind the camera for so long. Maybe I'll start putting myself out there. And then it was comments about how I look, for example, or this, that and the other. And I was like, okay, maybe the world's a little bit harsh sometimes. Like I don't see why me being a redhead has got anything to do with how good my cake is, but it matters to some people. I think that sort of showed me that even though cake can bring everyone together, <laughs> the world of the internet can be terrifying. Mm. But it's sort of realising that maybe that person had something on their mind that day and they didn't necessarily mean it in the way that they did. 
and just not taking anything too personally. Mm. And I think throughout the years, especially trying to do YouTube, for example, oh, trolls are not very nice people. (laughs) But it's okay. I think it's learning to accept that someone had a bad day and they've said something. But as long as the good is still there, it's 100% worth it. And I see 99.99% good all of the time. And I think it's just the slog behind researching a recipe as well. Like, it has to be right before you put it out. But then again, people can interpret something slightly differently or go, oh, I didn't have that ingredient, so I just bung something else in. Thought it might work, but it hasn't, but it's your fault. I know, that those those comments are quite hard to deal with. Yeah, and it's like, I always want to try and help. And I think the first time I ever struggled was somebody had tried to make a cheesecake and you've got to whip it until it's thick, but they'd put the mixture in a liquidizer. So I was like, well, you've kind of made a cheesecake smoothie, (laughs) which sounds great, but no, that's definitely not going to set. I'm really sorry. And it's just trying to help people understand why Mm. and just sort of try and always be positive about it. And it is so easy to because of the amount of good that there is. Um, But it's those hours, I think, where people don't realise, I've tested this 10 times. I'm I'm tired. (laughs) I just want to publish a recipe now. (laughs) That's interesting what you say. So how far into blogging were you when you became the face of Jane's Patisserie? I think I tried for the first time to really put myself out there um, in probably 2019. So I've been doing it about five years or so okay and then and just very happy yeah being behind the scenes yeah rarely might have done like a photo of me every now and again and people would go oh who is this I'm like oh yes it's Jane (laughs) bye see you in another nine months (laughs) the rare time you see my face (laughs) and um I thought okay well you know lockdown will help I'll do YouTube videos because then it's easier for people to follow along visually to a recipe Like, my website, for example, is not set up to do step-by-step photos. I don't have the setup to be able to to do that either. So I thought video will help because you can pause it and carry on. Mm. And um, I think that sort of contributed towards me going, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? Um, And it sort of changed it a bit for me, I think, like being braver behind the camera. But then the fear of doing anything else was far too much definitely didn't want to go any further just like writing recipes and hiding behind a page (laughs) (laughs) and now look at you you're on this morning and all sorts of exciting things let's talk about the fifth desert island dish and that's the dish you eat the most often i'd say this is a pure guilty pleasure thing and it's not even that bad but it's just meze platters and putting the word platter on the end making it sound (laughs) posher than it is but like if I could have like a bowl of hummus and some pita breads, I'm happy. Add some olives in, anything, baba ganoush, like Ooh, nuts, yeah. vegetables. If I had to do this for a crowd, just do lots more of it. But for me, if I could just sit there with my pot of hummus, I will be the happiest person ever. And mm. I eat this more often than I probably want to admit. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know how many hummus tubs I go through a week. I do now make my own to make this easier because I took things too far with how much hummus I bought. (laughs) But I guess if you're developing recipes and you're baking all day, Mm. at the end of the day, you don't really want to be standing in the kitchen making something. So that makes sense that you just want something like that. that Exactly. It's assembling. Exactly. And you can like add things on to make it a bit more of a meal with like grilled meats and like halloumi and all sorts. And by the time you add in all the different sides and like vegetables, it's still quite a healthy dinner, to Mm. be honest. And it's just delicious and so versatile. But it's now also like my go-to picnic idea. And I'm like, should we go for a picnic? 
I'll bring my meze. <laughs> just Jane and her meze, don't mind her. She just has a constant bag of meze. <laughs> so the book was more successful than you could ever have imagined. Mm. It sold 44,000 copies in the first three days and 155,000 in the first three months, which is so <laughs> staggering. Mm. You say that this is bigger than you ever could have dreamt of. Yes. Was anyone anticipating that success? And at what point did you realise this was actually happening? I think... I'd be safe to say this now as there are three books in, but even my publishers didn't think this would happen. And I remember the phone call, I think it was the second day. I think in the first 24 hours, 12,000 copies have gone, but they'd only ordered, to my knowledge, about 20,000. So I had a phone call from my editor like, well, okay, um, we're doing several more print runs straight away, and then this is happening, and then it just kept on snowballing. And I was sat there going, yes, 12,000 copies. I don't know how good that is. Like, I mean, well, yeah, nothing mean to me. anything. Yeah, absolutely no context. And I'm there going, okay, you need to help me out here because you're saying nice things, but to me, you could say that to everyone because you're my publisher. You're going to be nice to me. No, no, they were saying this is how many other people have sold. Oh, okay, that's that's quite cool. And like being number one on the Amazon charts for like ages, and then always being in the number one. And then I believe the first book was number one in all books in the UK once it was released. I mean, and I'm sat that's there going, unbelievable. But even above, like, Harry Potter. <laughs> what? And just slowly losing my mind. And, like, the third book now was number one in all nonfiction books. That's incredible. <laughs> I can't grab that concept in my mind that it's gone that well. But I think what's happened is not only have you built up this incredible following and a mm. huge number of followers, but it's obviously more than that. It's a community and these people aren't just following a page. They're following you. Yeah, 100%. I think people love to see that in my journey. And it's like I've said before about being like the friend in the kitchen. I think that's what people trust in as lots of people can sort of go, ooh, should I write a book? And it's like, yes, you should, because if you want to write a book, you should write a book. But I think for me, it was just, I just thought it would be cool to have a book. And there was nothing <laughs> else behind it then. Oh, that'd be pretty sick, you know, like, there's a book with my name on it. Oh. Um, and even though, like, a large percentage of my followers think Patisserie is my surname, I don't mind. It's like, I could change that to be my surname. It might make things easier. We can just drop Jane down at the bottom. Well, you we could don't just have that. it double barreled. Exactly. It would be great. And it's like, I will do anything to make this easier for my followers, <laughs> even change my name. And I just think, yeah, it's the spiral what, from of... Jane to Jane. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, why not? We just add the apostrophe in there. It's easy. And I think you've announced it, but you haven't given details mm. that you've got a cookware range, yes. a bakeware range. What else is in the future plans? Like, would you ever open a bricks and mortar? I've always said this because I think originally that was the plan. Mm. And the reason I'm called Jane's Patisserie is because... I was best at the patisserie part of school and I'd looked at other names to call myself, like somebody to do with ginger hair or ginger snap, I don't really know. Um, Then I thought, Jane's Patisserie, that kind of, that'd be a cool name for a shop, you know? And then I think everyone and myself thought that would happen and then it's the realistic side of, oh, that costs a lot of money. And then it's actually having to have staff and the physical premises is terrifying yeah but it's what people want Mm. and like everyone's excited about the books they're excited about the baking range and I'm like if I could make a real life patisserie happen I 100% would I think it's one of those things exciting yeah and that life is long 
Exactly. I think it's one of those things that I'd want to get right and do it properly. So if I was to do one, it would be years in the future to okay. get everything perfect. And I would just be there every day in my element, my, like, look at all of the cookies and everything for sale. I can see that for you. Yeah. Yeah. It would be my dream. On to the sixth desert island dish. What's your go-to dinner party dish? Do you throw many dinner parties? I feel like I throw together a lot of cake when I'm usually the one who just brings dessert. So my dessert for a dinner party dish is a bit of a curveball for the starter in Maine, which is Japanese food. Okay. I love any form of Asian food that there is. I just think the flavors are amazing. The sort of food is incredible. But I love Japanese food. And like simple starters of like edamame with like loads of salt with chili as well and garlic. Absolutely delicious. I could eat those constantly. And then like a noodly dish, like a yakisoba, because I like the thick noodles. Mm. You can put any sort of meat in there, vegetables, maybe like teriyaki flavor. I just am a throw together kind of girl when it comes to cooking for other people. I have a weird fear of doing it. Oh, do you? Yeah, even though like cooking on stage is like terrifying, cooking for my friends I find more scary. It's mm, like a pressure more personal. now. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, if it tastes bad, they will tell me. <laughs> They're not going to keep that quiet. So I think something like noodles is easy because it's got so much flavour. Yeah. But then I'd want something like sticky toffee pudding. Oh, yeah. Which, a curveball, maybe after noodles, but... I just love it. I don't think there's ever a bad time to have sticky toffee pudding. No, even in the peak of summer, just mm. have it with ice cream instead of custard. Yes. Have the cold element. Mm. And if I go to any restaurant that serves it, I will be buying it because I want to find the best sticky toffee pudding ever. Okay, how's that project going? I think I've eaten about 30 <laughs> recently. <laughs> Where and is there a winner? It's a local pub to me, mm. actually, um, so far. And I'm like, yeah, annoyingly, you're probably a bit better than mine. <laughs> but I just I just adore it. And I think it's one of those dishes that you can sort of bring out the oven after everyone's finished eating, have custard and ice cream if you want it. And everyone sort of goes, ooh. So good. Yes. <laughs> On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. Mm. So I'd love to know, what is your most treasured cookbook? It's actually one of my grannies, um, which... <laughs> It, I sort of wanted to bring it in just to show you, but it's very specific. The 1973 Good Housekeeping Cookbook, which <laughs> it, you can tell it's from 1973. <laughs> like on the front is like the lamb cutlets with the, oh, I yes. call them the little hats. Yeah. Like the frills. Yeah, the ruffle. There's a, yeah, there's a proper pie on there. Like I think it's a giant gammon joint. It looks proper cooking mm. and it's completely falling apart because it's like 19 years older than me. And it's opening it up and seeing all my granny's notes. Oh, so, so it's nice. one of those really old cookbooks with mainly just writing. And then it's her notes of, no, don't do that. And I'm like, oh, disagreeing. And then she'll just randomly write her scone recipe in there. Oh. Just just on a page that had a bit of room. <laughs> but I will read that and sort of go, oh, there's a reason she tried that. We're going to do this as well. And do you write in your cookbooks now? <laughs> Maybe. Do you, when you're cooking? <laughs> yeah, I have my original, well, I have the first of each book that I've done. Mm. And it's absolute carnage if you try and read it. But they're my copies. And they're okay. the ones I have at home. So what are you writing in there? Just like extra things of, oh, maybe I could try this. Because a lot of what I do... Especially you could notes. auction them for a lot, Jane. <laughs> Maybe in the future. <laughs> it's like the first concept of the first book was that everything's customizable. Mm. So once you learn the basics of a cheesecake, which is only so many ingredients, try several different ways to flavor it. 
You want to get the basics down and crack them because that's the science bit and then have fun with it. So every recipe in all three books has notes of you could try this if you want or this, make this chocolatey instead of vanilla. Then I go, oh, I could have put that as an example. Mm. But for me, I'll write it down and like this time I tried this. And I'll write down those notes. Okay. And then if anybody ever borrowed them, they'd be like, there's about a thousand recipes in this thing rather than a hundred because you've written <laughs> so many more. But I'm interested because my granny was the same mm. and she'd write in all of her cookbooks and make the same kind of notes. Like mm. I did this instead of that and don't do this, whatever. And I love that. But then with my own like cookbook collection, mm-hmm. I I don't know. Like I use post-its quite a lot. Yes. But I, I feel... I feel scared about, right? I don't know. There's something like I'm quite precious about them. But then I don't like the idea of my eventual grandchildren having my cookbook collection and they're just completely blank and they don't mean anything. I don't know. It's a weird weird one. I feel like cookbooks are made to get messy. Mm, It's the one book that no matter who borrows it, looks at it in the future, it's probably going to be a chocolate stain on there, a weird grease mark, and you go, I don't know what that was, and you carry on. So the notes, I think, are always worth noting down. Yeah, I think so. And it's okay. just part of the charm. That will be my new, that will be my new thing. <laughs> well, on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? I think this might be a little bit embarrassing or basic, but it, if I could have it my way, it would just be a giant bowl of roast potatoes Ooh. with gravy to dip them in. And it's so simple, but it would fill you up enough for the desert island that mm-hmm. like you'd be full of potato yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it would keep you going for a while. <laughs> but it's a weird thing. I've always said, like, if I feel poorly, if I do anything, roast potatoes will make mm. me feel better. Is there anything better than a cold roast potato? They are, Why are they so, so good. good. Mm. Like very rare that you get a cold roast potato because there are never <laughs> any left. <laughs> yeah. But if you if you get one dipped in a little bit of mayonnaise. Oh, I just love them. It's like I would try and sneak some roast potatoes into my pockets. And I was like, <laughs> you're coming to the desert island with me or they, I'm going to work out how to do this on the island. <laughs> are you going to finish off with a pudding? <laughs> Again, something I would call extremely basic. It's just some strawberries and melted chocolate. Ooh. It's one of those things that I think, because like growing up, if I was like just trying to do like, I don't know, like exam work or revision, like keep me going with a little bit of sugar, just some melted chocolate. And then, like, if you, for example, if you could also sneak the chocolate onto the island, just leave it in the packet. Oh. Open up the packet, it's already melted. So you don't good. even have to melt it anywhere. It would just melt itself and you could just dunk whatever fruit you find on this island into mm. it and it would be brilliant. I like the way you're thinking about smuggling food onto the island. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Jane, those were your desert island dishes. Thank you so much. Thank you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of desert island dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It really does make such a difference. It boosts the show in the charts and helps others to find it, which is great and means that I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for our brand new newsletter, Dinner Tonight, via the link at dinnertonight.substack.com. I've also put it in my Instagram bio and you can also sign up via the desertislanddishes.co website. Can you tell I really want you to sign up for the newsletter? (laughs) Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next week. Bye.